Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please take out the Word of God and turn in it to the book of Romans and chapter number 15. You may have an electronic version, that's fine, that's great. If you don't have any version of the Word of God, you might reach under a seat in front of you and take that Bible that is there and turn to page 128 and you'd find yourselves at Romans 15. Now, I don't know all of your background, I don't know all of your spiritual history, but if you in your spiritual walk have been involved in multiple churches or in multiple spiritual groups, you will know that often in these groups, some of these groups, there can be a common motto. Uh, It's an unofficial spiritual slogan that might exist. Some groups have this. And it goes something like this. Look as I look, do as I do, then and only then I'll have fellowship with you. Now, maybe you've been fortunate not to be in that kind of a church environment or that kind of a spiritual group, but that's a common attitude. Look as I look, do as I do, then and only then I'll have fellowship with you. When that kind of a slogan or a motto is prominent in a spiritual group, I will tell you what happens. It breeds conflict. It creates a false standard of spirituality. Because what people are really doing when they do that, and they have that as their motto, their eyes are on externals rather than eternals. And that motto is fueled by spiritual pride. But there's a better way. And that better way is to walk in love. And I have been sharing with you a biblical definition of love. It goes like this, love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interest regardless of the cost. That means there's a sacrificial element involved in it. And I think we, I want us to get this and have a grip on this, so let's just repeat that out loud together. Are you ready? Here we're going to go. Love is the commitment of my will to your needs and best interest regardless of the cost. The title I have given to today's message is Marks of a Loving Church, and we're going to be covering chapter 15 and the first six verses, and I would like to read them and then have you follow along as I'm reading. Paul writes to the believers and he says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind 
with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord, you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we examine uh, these six verses today, we, we have a plan that we want to work our way through. It involves several things. Number one, we want to review the background. We want to take these verses and put it back into the overall context of what's been happening in chapter 14 and now into 15. Secondly, we're going to look at the call to focus on others' spiritual welfare. We're going to see an exhortation to that in the first couple of verses. We're going to see the ultimate example of that in verse 3. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to sort of pull back and do a flyover and look at the marks of a loving church, and we're going to see them in all six of these verses. So that's where we're headed today. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to begin by reviewing the background. And the background of all of this relates to differences that we may have in what we call the gray areas of the Christian life. Differences in the gray areas of the Christian life. We're not talking about essential doctrines. We're talking about lifestyle choices. Lifestyle choices that are not directly addressed by the Scriptures. For example, where should we send our kids to school? How should we educate our children? You cannot go to a verse that tells you the answer to that. Or what sort of beverages should I consume or not consume? You can't really go to any place that tells you the answer to that question. How should I dress as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ? How should you dress? Well, other than being modest, the Bible has nothing to say really ultimately about that. Now, one of the things that Paul surfaces in uh, chapter 14 is he talks about two types of believers in the church. He talks about those who are weak in faith. Now, this would be someone, it doesn't, it's not a derogatory term, it just seems it means that someone who has a restricted sense of liberty. And then he also talks about those who are strong in faith. Their individuals have a broad sense of liberty. And here's what happens with those two groups. Those who have this restricted sense of liberty, who are the weak in faith, they look at those who are strong, who have the broader sense, and they tend to judge them. They're condemning towards them. They say to them, you're just too liberal in your choices. At the same time, the one who is strong in faith, who has this broad sense of liberty, looks at the one who has the more restricted sense of liberty, and they look at them with disdain, they're rather condescending towards them, and they would say to them, you're just too rigid, you're just too rigid. And both of them would view the other one as unspiritual. And so we have seen in, in the weeks before that love allows for differences. We saw that two weeks ago. Um, love does not try to impose my conviction on you, and you should not try to coerce me to also embrace your conviction. And part of the problem, and Pastor Mark did a good job of pointing this out last week, is that when we fall into these issues, we're focused on external things rather than eternal things, and the eternal things are the important things. Generally speaking, the one who is weak in faith, who has this restricted view, tends to be overly cautious. 
At the same time, the one who is strong in faith, who has this very broad sense of freedom, can often be overly careless in the exercise of their freedom. Mark did a good job last time of pointing out the potential danger in chapter 14 and verse 15, where he says, For if because of whatever your choice may be, your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with whatever choice it may be him for whom Christ died. This this idea of hurting someone means to give them uh, some, some grief and distress in their spiritual walk. The idea of destroying them might be that you would influence by your practice of liberty them to slip into some sort of spiritual failure or to damage their spiritual walk in some way. Now, I, I'm a very concrete person, so when I'm looking at principles, I have to have something to hang them on to really get a good grip on them. So I just want to illustrate how this might work out uh, in everyday life from an illustration from my own life. I have a relative who, when he was in college, was a full-blown alcoholic. He was consuming, in his collegiate years, two cases of beer a day. Now, I'm like, that's, that's a lot of alcohol. And when that relative of mine began to walk with Christ, he developed a conviction about alcohol. And that conviction about alcohol was alcohol was wrong. No believer in Jesus Christ should ever put alcohol to his mouth. Now, he had a very restricted view of liberty when it came to that. Now, I happen to know that the Bible does not prohibit drinking a beer. There's no verse that tells you, do not do that if you're a follower of Christ. And so how, my liberty was, was broader than his. And so what was I going to do about that? Well, I, I became a little concerned. Um, I know that he viewed me as a spiritual mentor. He viewed me as a spiritual example And so I had a concern, and that concern involved the idea that if I were to perhaps drink a beer and he would be aware of it, maybe he would think, you know, well, Bruce is more spiritual than me. I guess he thinks it's all right, and then maybe there would be suddenly a beer to his lips, and then boom, here we go, back into the abuse of alcohol. So I made a choice, and that choice was to restrict my liberty because I wanted to avoid hurting him, causing him distress potentially destroying him if he fell into some sort of a spiritual collapse because of my practice of liberty. And by the way, that's still my general perspective today because I don't know all of you. I don't know all of your backgrounds. And so you would never hear me discussing that, not because it's not perhaps allowable in terms of freedom of choice, but because I'm choosing to restrict my liberty. Now, there's a great summary of all of this teaching that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks at the end of chapter 14. Uh, For example, it tells us in verse 21, if we just want to summarize what we're supposed to be doing, verse 21 tells us that we are to be considerate. That's the thrust of what's in verse 21. We're to be sensitive to other people's convictions, and we're to be willing to adjust our own practice of liberty for their good. And then we learn in verse 22 that we're not only to be considerate, we're to be convinced. We're to be fully convinced 
in our own mind, as it says in chapter 14 and verse 5. Here in verse 22, it says, have your own convictions before God. In other words, we're to develop convictions about these gray areas. We're to consider the impact positively and negatively. What does this mean for me? And we're to develop a conviction about it. We're to be considerate. We're to be convinced. And then the third summary that we get at the end of chapter 14 is we're to be consistent. And Pastor Mark talked about this. In other words, I need to match my actions with my convictions. You see, if I have a conviction that something is wrong for me to do, and then I do it, that's sin for me. It may not be sin for you because you have a different conviction. So we're to be considerate, we're to be convinced, and we're to be consistent. Now, we say all of that just to review the background, you know, just to set us up with a great context for verses 1 to 6. So the second thing we want to do is look at the call that Paul gives us to focus on others' spiritual welfare. And we see the exhortation to that in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. Now we who are among the strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Now, he starts off by saying, we who are strong, we who have this broad sense of liberty when it comes to lifestyle choices. And by the way, you notice that Paul includes himself here. He says, we who are strong, who have this broad sense of liberty when it comes to lifestyle choices. He says in the New American Standard, we ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Um, that verb that is translated ought in the New American Standard is a verb that means to owe someone something. We could easily translate it, have an obligation. Those who have this broad sense of liberty have an obligation, if you will, to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. That little phrase, bear the weaknesses of, has involved, it's a picture, it's kind of like picturing, you know, everybody has a little backpack, and at times you bear the backpack of somebody else. You know, for years we have had father-son campouts and father-daughter campouts, and uh, I, I took my son back from the time he was four years old to the father-son my two older daughters, I never took to the campout because we didn't have father-daughter campouts then, but with my youngest, I took her to the father-daughter. And you know, um, how many people have ever been to one of those campouts? Let me see some hands. Okay, so quite a f number of you have. A lot of times we've gone down to the Wichita's, and a lot of times we've had these campouts at times when it's been relatively warm, and then we go on a hike. And I remember one time I was there with my daughter, and uh, I took a bunch of girls individually, went out on a hike. And of course, you know, we're going out on a hike, and everybody has a canteen, and everybody wants to carry their own canteen. And they're carrying some other gear with them. And then you're hiking up in the mountains, and slowly, you know what starts to happen. This is getting too heavy. I don't want to carry it. You know, so I remember one time I was hiking with all these girls, and I had like 12 canteens around me, you know because I'm beginning to bear some of the, the weight that they didn't want to carry. And, and that's the picture here, 
It says that we who are strong ought to have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. I want you to know I did not want to have 16 canteens on me, but I was bearing the weaknesses of those around me. The New Living Translation puts it this way, be considerate of the doubts of those who think these things are wrong. I may not think it's wrong, but they do. And we need to be considerate of their doubts. Look at verse 1 again, how it ends. It says, and not just please ourselves. It's another common way you would put that. And not just be, it's the S word, selfish, exactly. And not just be selfish. Remember the definition of love. Love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interest regardless of the cost. Let's say it again out loud. Are you ready? A commitment of my will to your needs and best interest regardless of the cost. See, in this, in this whole area of gray areas that the Bible does not directly address in lifestyle choices, it's not just a matter of what's permissible. That's what Paul's saying. It's what's loving. Got to remember that. Look at verse 2. He goes on to expand it a little bit. He says in verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Now, several times if you've been with us in the study of Romans, I pointed out that the original language can put things in a particular position in a sentence that gives a lot of emphasis to it, like you were triple underlining it. And you notice the first phrase is each of us. Any guess as to whether or not that is emphatic in the original? Yes, it is. Uh, No one is to be left out of this. Each of us is to do what? To please his neighbor. And by the way, that is a command. Again, it's not an optional thing. It's not something, I don't think I want to do that. I'm not interested in that. No, this is a command from the Lord himself. Each of us is to please his neighbor. Now, I want you to understand what Paul's not saying here, okay? It's It's easy to misunderstand. Paul is not saying that we're to try to please everybody. Is that even possible? No, it's not possible to please everybody. He's not saying that we're to automatically to subject ourselves to every whim of other people. He's not saying that we're going to try to please everybody. Listen, if you're going to try to please everyone, you wouldn't get dressed. Because no matter how you choose to get dressed, somebody's going to say that's not the right way to be dressed. If you try to please everyone, you're not even going to eat a meal because someone's going to say that's not the right kind of a meal to eat. You should be eating this sort of a meal. If we're going to try to please everyone, you'll never get your hair cut because somebody's going to say that's not the right way to cut your hair. So he's not calling us to try to please everybody. Here's what he's calling ourselves to. The opposite of being self-focused, that's what he's calling ourselves to. He's calling us to be others-focused. That's different than trying to please everybody. Can't pull that one off. And notice the aim of it all. 
Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his or her edification. That just simply means building them up spiritually. Look back to chapter 14 at verse 19. He draws a mini conclusion there. He says, so then, we pursue, we chase after the things which make for peace and what? The building up of one another. That becomes a priority. I want to build you up. I want to encourage you. I want to do things for your good. Now, again, I'm so concrete-minded that it's hard for me to just take principles and not have any sense of how this might look in everyday life. So I want to give you another illustration. It's going to be a very lighthearted one, all right? When I was a young teen, this is going to be true confessions now, I was deeply into Twinkies. You know, that very delectable, two come in a package, that light golden sponge cake that has this vanilla cream on the inside. And when I was a young teen and even later on into my early 20s, I really enjoyed Twinkies. In fact, even though I hadn't had very many Twinkies for many years, on my 30th birthday, my youngest sister, Laurie, put in a box 30 Twinkies for 30 years of life. And that just freaked me out. Totally freaked me out. 30 Twinkies, how am I going to eat all of those? I did. (laughs) And even even to this very day, you know, I'm going down the grocery store aisle and and by the way, it's, it's, something is really catching my eye now. They now have a new kind of Twinkie. It, instead of vanilla cream, it has chocolate cream. And I'm wondering, you know, what does that taste like? Hmm. <laughs> now, what happened is, of course, that, that I developed a conviction that I shouldn't be eating Twinkies. I developed this conviction. It's wrong for me for multiple reasons, not to be eating Twinkies anymore. Now, let's just assume for a moment that you have a different conviction than mine. My, my, my conviction is no Twinkies, Bruce. But your conviction is Twinkies, awesome. Everybody ought to be eating Twinkies. It's okay. There's freedom in Christ to eat Twinkies. Even the chocolate cream ones, you know, those are really especially good. Now, now what happens when we cross paths. You have a conviction? I have a conviction that, well, I was into the Twinkie thing, but now uh, 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 Twinkies aren't for me. Or you might say, well, you know what? Because I know Bruce, I'm only going to eat my Twinkies in the privacy of my own home. But certainly if Bruce comes over, I'm not going to just have a platter full of them. Because you see, I don't want to cause him to spiritually stumble. You might be thinking to yourself, you know, I, I know Bruce struggles trying to avoid Twinkies because he has a conviction in that area. I, I know that, that I have the freedom to eat them, but I'm going to choose to restrict my freedom because of his good. I will refrain from that. I will choose to restrict my liberty. That's kind of the idea in all of this. And you can use all kinds of illustrations of this. For example, here in America, you know, it may very well be that you feel 
you have the freedom to have HBO, or it could be some other sort of a, a prescription channel. And, and you know that on HBO, there are some programs no believer ought to watch. But to you, you say, I can handle that. I'm not even tempted by that. So I feel this freedom that I can have HBO. But you also know that there could be some other people in the church community who, because of certain things in their past, would never have HBO in their home because they said, I can't control watching the programs that should be avoided. Or maybe you have young children in your home, and even though you feel like you have the liberty and the freedom for HBO, you decide because of those kids, I'm not going to have it. You make a choice to restrict your freedom. You know, I remember uh, in 1990 when I first went to Latvia, and uh, I found out a certain conviction that they had there that really surprised me, caught me off guard, because they had a conviction that you should never, ever, ever, ever take your Bible and set it down anywhere but on a table. You would never, they said to me, take your Bible and set it down, for example, on a piece of carpet. And I remember them telling me that, and I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, are you kidding me? Where, where in the Bible does it say that? that? It would be wrong to take your Bible and place it on a piece of carpet. You know, I've done it here at certain times when I might have taken my Bible and I might have set it down right there. But they would say, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. And I can remember my reaction was, really? Really? Because I, I personally had the freedom to do that. But their view was much more restricted than mine. And therefore, of course, I followed their counsel. But here's what's interesting. When we're viewing someone who's more restricted than us, it's very easy in our mind to be saying to ourselves, why should I sacrifice and limit my liberty for that? For another person. You ever had that thought? Why do I need to consider restricting my liberty for them. And there's an answer to that question. It's found in the ultimate example in verse 3. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, to his building up. Reason? For even Christ did not please himself. It's very interesting. This is the very first time in the book of Romans that there's any reference to the example of Christ. First time it happens is right here. Or even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm of David, but it's ultimately also talking about Christ. And it's referring to the fact that the insults that were aimed at God fell on Christ. For Christ did not please himself. You might jot down here, and you can look at it later, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. Philippians Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8, which talks about the example of Christ. Verse 3 in that section of Philippians 2 says this, with, listen to this, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. What an amazing statement looking at Christ because that's what he did. 
And therefore, we also should, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. Remember the definition of love, a commitment of my will to your needs and best interest, regardless of the cost. Let's say that again. A commitment of my will to your needs and best interest, regardless of the cost. That means there's sacrifice involved. Now, the third thing we want to do is we want to look at the marks of a, of a loving church, and we're going to see that in all six verses. Um, but before we do that, I want to survey through verses 4, 5, and 6, and then we're just going to go back for a flyover over the verses, okay? Look at verse 4. As he's quoted this Old Testament passage, he goes on to say in verse 4, "...for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction." So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What was written in the earlier times, he's referring to the Old Testament. Uh, You know, Paul says later on in his writings, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. And he's referring there not only to what he was writing, but also to the Old Testament. And it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. Whatever was written in earlier times, referring to the Old Testament, had timeless principles and truths involved with it. Sometimes people wonder, why do we have the Old Testament? It just seems so so old. It's there for a reason. You might turn with me a couple pages to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 6 and 11 because he, he stresses this same idea of timeless principles and truths to be found in the Old Testament. He says in verse 6, now these things, as he's referring Old Testament history, happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. We learn things from studying the Old Testament. Verse 11 Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. We learn things from the Old Testament. There's value to it, and value, obviously, to the New Testament. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You see, when we're in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we learn about God's character. We can learn examples from them about how to walk with God. We can learn about God's principles of wisdom for everyday living. We can learn about God's promises. And as we learn all of those things... Ultimately, as we're receiving some some principles of endurance and encouragement from the Scriptures, we end up having hope, and we need hope in this world in which we live. You know, I've been through a really rough year, health-wise. I needed endurance and encouragement, and it ultimately came to me through the Word of God. That's, people, people say, why do you and Mark stand up there and go through all these verses and talk? This is where we get our principles of living, where we learn about how to endure the circumstances of life and, and how to have encouragement and ultimately how to have hope. 
Verse 5, he, he actually introduces a prayer here. He says, now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. May the God who actually delivers to us endurance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. It's a prayer that we as followers of Christ would live in harmony despite our differences. We have differences in personality, differences in background, difference economically, differences racially, differences in how we have convictions about how to deal with gray matters in the Christian life. But he simply wants us to live in harmony despite our differences. In other words, this is a prayer that we might team together that we would team together. So may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. And then there's a little phrase that you could almost miss. It says, according to Christ Jesus. In other words, we're looking to Jesus again here. He said that you may be of the same mind with one another, having the attitude of Christ towards one another. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, as part of his prayer, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That little phrase, with one accord, it's a very interesting term. It is only used outside of here in all of the New Testament in the book of Acts. You might remember that phraseology from Acts. It's used 11 times in Acts, only here elsewhere in the New Testament. Luke used it a lot when he wrote the book of Acts. Paul only uses it one time, and I think he's just reaching back into the story of Acts to pull it back out. Remember how it talked about many times in Acts with one accord or with one mind, the followers of Jesus did certain things. The prayer is that with one accord, we might say it with one heart, that we'd be on the same page, that we would be together. We're very different, but that we would be on the same page and be together. And then with one voice in a united front, we would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to pull back from all of this and talk for a moment about some of the marks of a loving church. I think they are embedded in these verses. And, and, you know, if someone were to come to you and they were to say, you know, Brian, is why would a loving church, or or Kathy would say, have someone ask her that, what what would your answer to that be? how, How would you be able to quantify that for somebody? Well, I see some marks of a loving church embedded here. I want to give them to you. First of all, a loving church is a place centered on Christ. We see that coming from verse 3. You know, for even Christ did not please himself. Let's look at Jesus. Let's stay centered on him. And again, we saw it at the end of verse 5. We are 
to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. He is what we center on. We are centered on him, on who he is and what he has done. It's the first mark of a loving church, a place centered on Christ. Second mark of a loving church is a place of acceptance. And we can draw that from the first couple of verses. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his or her edification. Loving church is a place of acceptance. There's an atmosphere of biblical love and commitment of my will to your needs and best interest regardless of the cost. Loving church is a place centered on Christ. It's a place of acceptance. Thirdly, it is a place of instruction. A place of instruction where there is teaching that is centered around the word of God. Again, that's why we do what we do because that's a mark of a loving church. It's a place centered on instruction where we are learning from the word of God which is helping to garner for us encouragement and endurance that ultimately leads to hope. Because I don't know about you, some of my days get pretty hard and I need hope. And as I get older, I need hope. Because I realize more and more that time is whittling away. There's only so much time left in my life. A loving church is a place centered on Christ. It's a place of acceptance. It's a place of instruction. Number four, it is a place of prayer. And we see that in verse five. It's prayer. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. It, it, it's a place, a loving church, where we're praying, we're petitioning the Lord, Lord, we need endurance. Sometimes I get weighed down by the circumstances, and I need endurance. God, give me endurance. We need encouragement, Lord. Give us encouragement. We need to be diligent to preserve the bond of the unity of peace in the church of Jesus Christ. We're praying that God would do that for us. It is a place centered on Christ, a place of acceptance, a place of instruction, a place of prayer. And then fifthly, a loving church is a place of harmony. A place of harmony. We see that there in verse 6. So that with one accord, one heart, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A loving church is a place of harmony. It allows for differences. It allows for differences. And one of the keys to that is the Lord Jesus is honored first and foremost over my ideas and my preferences. It's about him. It's really not about me. It's about him. Now, I want you to look at that list that's up on the screen. Those are some of the marks of a loving church. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The church is nothing more than you and me. If that's what a loving church is going to be, it begins with me. It means that I have to be centered on Christ. It means that I have to practice acceptance towards people who have different convictions. It means that I have to be involved in pursuing instruction from the word of God. It means that I have to be in prayer. It needs to, means that I need to be seeking to have harmony where we're on the same page with one another. And that means setting aside some of my stuff for you. 
It begins with me and it begins with you. It begins with a walk in love. It begins saying the number one most important thing is his honor and his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God, for how powerful it is, for how helpful it is. And we look at those marks of a loving church. We would pray that you would develop them in me, in each one of us, so that we might be that kind of a church for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.